0: What a great morning we had, but that is only improved upon by coming back together um, in the evening. Just a little bit of an advertisement here over the next uh, number of weeks, some different preaching things are going to be happening. Um, beginning next Sunday, on Sunday morning, we're going to do, I've never done this before, but kind of a combination Christmas and New Year's uh, sermon series, and I'm going to talk about the gifts that we can give to Christ and we're going to study the church at Jerusalem because the gifts that we want to give to him are the gifts of a church that's pleasing to him and this is a way for us to really get grounded once again in our ecclesiology and so uh, we'll we'll make it fit the Christmas season um, because rather than thinking about what we can get we're going to think about what we can give particularly as a church body And then, I've mentioned this uh, a couple of times, but I finally, I think, have nailed down a time. Um, Probably about the second Sunday night in January, we're going to start walking through the Pentateuch. We're going to go through Genesis through Deuteronomy, and it will be um, kind of a series on an epic scale. Uh, I've got it narrowed down to 60 messages so far, so I'm hoping to keep it to that. But we'll do about five messages to introduce the entire Pentateuch because it is a unit it is one book really um, in our Bible it's just divided into five scrolls because it was so much you couldn't carry a scroll around with the whole thing on it and we'll do then about 10 or 11 messages in uh, in each book and kind of give you an overview and what will happen is you will understand the Bible because if you understand the Pentateuch you understand the Bible so that's uh, some things coming up in our uh, preaching schedule And speaking of which, I want to do something a little bit new tonight. Generally, at the end of the year, I find that I've had growing on my heart some things that I want to share uh, with you from God's Word. Sometimes these are precipitated by situations that I know of and know that some of you face. And as I continue to try to know you and As I pray for you and hurt with you and rejoice with you these issues tend to bubble to the surface and certain needs arise which I believe that the Lord leads uh, for us to address from scripture and so there is value on the the occasional topical messages a topical message means that we're not going verse by verse through a particular book but we're going to uh, visit numbers of texts to assemble kind of an applied theology And so uh, there's value in in both types. I I live and die by verse by verse exposition, but on occasion it's good for us to uh, do a little bit of skipping around and and see what the Bible says as a whole. Now, just to give you a little insider information onto the mysterious world of preaching, uh, people think that there's like these mystery books that you have to be part of a club, and if you have those books, you can preach, and if you don't, you can't. Uh, There's no mystery, it's just study Um, but a little insider information generally speaking quality messages should attempt to be an independent unit all in and of themselves Um, in other words in the midst of a sermon series you should be able to pick any one of those sermons out and it stands alone it's useful to you it's it's helpful even in the middle of a series I'm going to ask for your indulgence though because I'm going to break that rule tonight for this mini-series, tonight I'm just going to give a, a long introduction, and then the next two messages will simply be the rest of a really long sermon. That's all it is. So this is a long, one single message that we'll divide up over a few weeks. So um, tonight is just to kind of get you thinking and get your get your mind in the right place. I'll continue next week, and then we're upon the Christmas and New Year season, and we'll uh, finish up in early January. But tonight, I want to just introduce you to my topic, and that is the greatest Christian virtue. The greatest Christian virtue, and I'll tell you what I'm identifying as the greatest Christian virtue a little bit later. I'm not going to do that yet. But first, I just want to establish the need for the greatest Christian virtue, that this is something that's important to us. And over the next few messages, we'll spend a lot of time in Proverbs, as we will tonight later. But right now, I want to begin our thoughts in Psalm 41. So if you would turn with me to Psalm 41 and we'll spend a few minutes here and then move on to the proverbs. Now, Psalm 41 is one of a number of psalms of King David in which the situation that is at hand here is physical illness. That there is an illness which King David uh, now attributes to his own sin, that he believes that the Lord is disciplining him. He's come to believe that this is this is God's will to teach him some lesson, to purify him, to drive him to repentance. But there's a a twist to his illness, There's there's a terrible surprise here, and that is that while he's ill, he's being visited by his friends, by people who outwardly are kind and sympathetic, but in reality, they're actually attempting to exploit this time of David's weakness to deal treacherously with him, even to overthrow the kingdom. Now, as I mentioned at our recent women's and men's events, the illness and the weakness of someone can actually at times bring out the worst in those closest to them. It can bring out a judgmental attitude. It can bring out a lack of patience, a lack of empathy. It can create a a relational piranha-like situation in which we bite the one who's already bleeding. And this is precisely what has happened to David Now, just broadly speaking, if we had to classify this psalm, it would be a psalm of thanksgiving since the last few verses, the climactic part of the psalm that consists of David's thanks for God's deliverance and help. But although it's a psalm of thanksgiving, the main body, the main section of the piece is is David's complaint, his crying to God about what his so-called friends are doing while he's ill. Now... We ought to note something because when we get to it, it won't make sense if we don't do that now. But look with me at the last verse of the psalm, verse 13, and then we won't visit it again. It says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. What we need to note is that that final verse is actually bigger than just this psalm. The book of psalms is divided into five distinct books within the book and psalm 41 happens to be the end of book one of the psalms and this is more than just an ending to psalm 41 in fact it's not really an ending to psalm 41 at all it's an ending to book one and it's a it's a doxology and each of the five books of psalms ends with a similar high-worship doxology. We just read this one. The end of book 2 happens in Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. The end of book 3, Psalm 89, the last verse. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Amen. The end of book 4, Psalm 106, the last verse, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And the end of book 5, of course, is the last psalm, Psalm 150, the last verse, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And those doxologies, like this one in Psalm 41, it's meant to elevate our hearts. It's meant to thrill us with with heavenly thoughts and to take us above all of the the minutiae and the difficulties and the grime and the filth of this world. But that's the end of the Psalm, and we're not dealing with that. Psalm 41 itself, though, brings us back to the reality of what it means to live in a sinful world, and in particular, to be hurt in relationships, to be harmed. Now, the psalm divides fairly neatly into three sections verses 1 through 3, then 4 through 10, and 11 and 12. But my purpose tonight is not so much to do a full exposition of the psalm. I, I just want to point out, kind of in list form, what David was experiencing with these people who were two faced hypocritical friends. But I want to be very, very clear about something because I very often preach on how to deal with being hurt. And that's not my point tonight. I'm not pointing these things out to get you started thinking on how to deal with this when you're in David's shoes. That's not my point. My point is to warn us to not be the hypocritical friends, to warn us to not be those people that are the herders, to not be that type of person who has turned on David. So let's just create a list from Psalm 41 of what David was experiencing from his so called friends. First, he was experiencing what we'll just call wicked thoughts. Wicked thoughts. Now, the first three verses contain instruction and commendation to those who would not be uh, like these hypocritical friends to, to the good guys. What you're going to do if you're if you're acting righteously to the choir master a Psalm of David. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. He, he says in verse one, blessed is the one who considers the poor. It just means the weak, the needy, anyone in a vulnerable position. And so he starts off, if you can picture, all of his hypocritical friends are over here and he's speaking to the good guys. You are the blessed ones. You're the ones that are going to be blessed by the Lord, not like these bozos over here. And so he starts with this blessing. And he simply points out, if you're a protector of the weak, the Lord will bless you, that he will bring his blessing into your life. And that is a a good proverb for us to remember. Now, verses four through 10 contain the report of what David has prayed about before God restored him. He did answer David's prayers. David believed his illness was the result of his own sin, and he confesses this sin in verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. But now we get to his lament in prayer, and that's really the body of the text, what his so-called friends have done to him. And look with me at verse 5. My enemies say of me in malice. And we'll just stop right there for a moment because this is our key word. Malice in Hebrew, it means something that is wicked, something that is worthless, something that has evil or cruel intentions. And David identifies the true heart and, and the thinking of these men that they're in their hearts, they're malicious, they're hateful, they're spiteful. And, and he correctly identifies this attitude. Now, I've done enough counseling to have heard people say, well, those thoughts are just normal to have on occasion. That's what being a human is. Well, it's true. It's what being a sinful human is. But somebody would say, well, those are just normal. But where do those thoughts lead? What do they actually go towards? The second half of verse 5, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? oh that's a little more serious david's so-called friends are literally wishing he was dead and again someone might say okay steve we all have those thoughts from time to time what's the big deal well there are three main verbs in this verse the first two are imperfect verbs which imply a repeated action he's saying repeatedly "When when will he die when will he die when will he die and the third main verb is a perfect verb which implies an event with lasting effects that goes on forever his name when will his name perish meaning that not only do I want him to die I want no one to ever remember him again so in other words this isn't a momentary lapse these are cultivated wicked thoughts over a long period of time that are murderous and that are wicked this is what Jesus nailed down for us in the Sermon on the Mount Have you ever heard in the media when somebody is accused of a terrible crime and the media uh, interviews a family member and the family member comes to the accused's uh, defense and says that so-and-so is not capable of this crime. My, my, my son is not capable of this crime. Well, actually, according to Scripture, everyone is capable of that crime. Everyone is capable of murder because there is no one who seeks after God, no one who does good, no, not one, because murder starts in the thoughts and with some, eventually it gets acted out. It gets actually put out there in physical form. So what is David experiencing? Those who had professed love for him have become so bitter, so jealous, so angry that they literally believe that David was not worthy to stay alive. And you might say, well, this is, this is the church. We don't experience that here. I've heard those words come out in my office 40 feet away from here that I'm sorry to say this but I wish so and so were dead it would make my life easier it is something that we can struggle with what is this this is the height of arrogance to decide that you would be better off if someone else was dead now you might believe that you would never literally wish someone was dead but have you ever, have you ever known in your heart that you would secretly smile if it happened have you ever known that Sometimes that person deserved it. Sometimes they didn't. But we are to search our hearts because if that were not true, Scripture would not warn us of this. We would not have those warnings. By the way, the malice of verse 5 has a New Testament Greek equivalent. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And Paul is not speaking to wicked people. He's speaking to Christians stop having wicked murderous thoughts the second thing that david was experiencing we'll just put together this list from his so-called friends he was experiencing what we'll call growing hypocrisy growing hypocrisy the beginning of verse six and when one comes to see me he others empty words while his heart gathers iniquity his friends other other uh, empty words it, it means worthless words futile words Uh, You've been around long enough to know when someone's telling you something and they're blowing smoke at you and they don't mean it. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. Uh, Actually, you're not. It doesn't show at all. You're not really glad to see me. You know when that's happening. Those are empty words. And to his face, David's friends are kind, but it's fake. It's disingenuous. It's counterfeit. They're, They're saying to his face, hey, I hope you feel better. Here's some flowers. And in their minds, I hope I can put them on your grave. They're just being disingenuous they believe the worst about them they hope the worst for him. but i want you to know this this deadly dynamic and this is the danger to us that, that we have to be careful of it says while his heart gathers iniquity it gathers iniquity this is the hebrew word of which one version is kibbutz a kibbutz is a, a gathering, a collecting. A kibbutz in Israel is a community of Jews living together and working together economically. And, and one, of the, one of the good things about a kibbutz is that the more, the merrier. The more you gather, the more effective it is. But David is saying that sin upon sin upon sin upon sin is gathering in the hearts of the hypocritical friends. That it's not just a momentary lapse. It is a collecting, a growing of sin. And it's growing like some sort of fungus. And this iniquity gathers until it forms a genuine hatred for the other. And this is a good warning for us because if you allow yourself to have one negative thought about another human being, about a brother or sister in Christ, it is possible for that to become a magnet for more of them and they gather until it becomes something bigger than you can handle and it blinds you. You don't see that it's there, but it's there when I exhort someone to forgive another and I get the classic answer, I don't know if I can do that. The gathering of iniquity in the heart has grown to the point where a person literally considers that in this situation, it might actually be best if I disobey the Lord. That might be the smart move. That's the blindness that occurs with this gathering of iniquity. And so they've grown in hypocrisy. So David's dealing with wicked thoughts, with growing hypocrisy. There's a third thing he's dealing with. We'll just call it group gossip. Group gossip. The end of verse 6, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. Verse 7, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Not only are they all patting each other on the back for their hatred of David, they imagine the worst. And and this doesn't just mean that they're thinking and hoping. It means that they're plotting. That they they are trying to make something happen. Not only do they wish harm on him, but they're considering doing him harm. And how does it start? By the group gossip in which one or two people get incensed and get irritated. Why is gossip so strongly condemned in the church of Jesus Christ in Scripture? Why is it condemned? Why is it so dangerous? Well, I think one reason is that it's manipulative in nature. That when you hear gossip, when you hear negative talk about another person, whether you like it or not, you are forced at that moment to consider the truth of that statement. And it therefore taints your view of that person who's being spoken against. You don't mean for that to happen, but it happens. It's extremely manipulative. As a pastor, and pastors know this, we often know when a home has turned to speaking harshly or critically about the pastor. You know how I know? Because the children in the home aren't able to be two-faced yet, and so they start avoiding me. And I can see that something negative has been happening because they're not manipulative enough yet to be fake and two-faced like their parents are. And so you see that it's happening. You've experienced this. You've had a relationship with someone that all of a sudden just goes frosty, and you don't know why. There's just this iciness and this coldness, and, and you don't understand very possibly it's the result of gossip that somebody else has come in and influenced an opinion about you a gossip generally has the expressed purpose of gathering support it is a group effort and receiving it silently yourself makes you just as responsible in David's case, no one is standing up to stop the gossip. No one's standing up to stop the slander. No one is, is rising to his defense. No one is saying, why are you attacking the man on the sickbed? Get away from me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen to this. You don't have to listen to this. No one is saying, you have 24 hours to go confess to David what you've been doing, or I'm going to do it for you. The choice is yours. I have done that with people in this church who want to be gossips. Here's your choice. You go deal with it or I will call him for you. It's up to you. The clock is ticking. No one's doing this for David. He's just alone and and people are coming against him. No one's trying to stop this. The fourth thing he's dealing with, I'll call it false omniscience. False omniscience. And if you want to know how to spell omniscience, it's omni and science. Omni and science. Verse eight says, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Now, omniscience is the attribute which God alone possesses, which simply means all knowing. Whether David's friends doing, whether they just do in verse eight, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again where he lies. A deadly thing is poured out on him. This is a, a passive verb, which means that someone else is making David sick. Who's the only other person who can make David sick? Well, it's God. So what are they saying? They're so filled with hatred and with bitterness toward him that they believe that God won't let David survive this illness. In other words, not only have they judged that David will die, they have judged that God must be against him. Does that sound familiar if you've read the book of Job? They have judged the heart of David. They have judged the heart of God. And they've arrogantly come to believe that David has lost God's favor. And listen, this is a trap. Because when you start subtly believing that God is on your side and against someone else, it becomes self-absolution, where you absolve yourself of sin simply because you think you're representing God. And that is very, very dangerous for us. Well, what else is poor old David experiencing? The fifth thing he's experiencing, we'll just call heartbreaking betrayal, Heartbreaking betrayal in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now David is apparently describing one particular man, a close friend who has eaten at the king's table and he has lifted his heel against me. Now if you know your Old Testament, this is a phrase that harkens all the way back to the birth of Jacob, the heel grabber. And he's the one who grabbed his own twin Esau's uh, heel at their birth. But he became known as indicative of being deceptive, being treacherous. When Esau was tricked by Jacob multiple times, Esau said, isn't he named rightly Jacob the heel grabber? We even get the expression, you're pulling my leg, meaning you're, you're fooling me, you're, you're tricking me. Now we don't know who this man was who had so tricked and fooled David but many think, and I think there's good reason for it, that it was Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's close friends and advisors who turned on him and sided with David's son Absalom in the rebellion and civil war against David in 2 Samuel 16. In fact, in later times, the name Ahithophel in the ancient Near East came to mean traitor. He is an Ahithophel. It became a descriptor. The coup failed, by the way, and Ahithophel went home and hanged himself In 2 Samuel 17. And by the way, if you know your New Testament a little bit, this verse is recognizable to you because verse 9 was applied prophetically in John 13, verse 18, to Judas as the one who betrayed Christ. And like Ahithophel, Judas betrayed a Davidic king. Like Ahithophel, his name is now synonymous with a traitor, that someone is a Judas. And like Ahithophel, after his betrayal, he went out and hanged himself. And poor David is going through this. David had his own Judas. Now, it's one thing when someone you don't know well becomes critical of you, we can kind of shrug that off. I'm always amused that when, when somebody who visits Grace Bible Church one time wants to send me a 19-page long email uh, telling me everything is wrong with the church, I mean, I don't even get two sentences into it, delete, next. Why? Because I don't know that person. They haven't earned the right to speak into my life. But when someone you've trusted and loved and confided in and been close to and, and, and been vulnerable with, when they suddenly turn on you, that's a that's a punch in the gut that takes your breath away. So poor old David here, he's, he's experiencing wicked thoughts and growing hypocrisy, group gossip, false omniscience, heartbreaking betrayal. And he knows that these friendships are completely lost the the bitterness against him is so great that it seems to be unrecoverable so he prays a prayer which frankly has disturbed many throughout the ages in verse 10 but you O lord be gracious to me and raise me up that i may repay them and that does bother us We, we say well but the bible says vengeance is mine says the lord and that's true the bible never contradicts itself so what is david speaking of here I think there's two perspectives to take into consideration. First of all, in the Old Testament, the idea of repaying someone is not always restricted to personal vengeance. It can speak of exposing sin. It can speak of of putting someone to shame for their wickedness. It's a prayer for vindication from God, and David just honestly says, if you can make me a part of it, I really would like to be. But there's a second perspective that's unique to David. David. David is the king of Israel and he has a God-given responsibility to punish the evildoer. That's the mandate of kings. That's what the government is to do. And so this is not personal revenge but a sense of bringing justice who in this case were trying to topple the king, topple the government. It was David's responsibility to repay them with justice. So this is a a completely appropriate prayer for him. So we get to these complaints but the psalm ends on on a hope of A note of hope and and triumph that god always vindicates his people so we do have a happy ending verses 11 and 12 by this i know that you delight in me my enemy will not shout and triumph over me but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever now what was it that david was not receiving but instead he was receiving wicked thoughts, growing hypocrisy, group gossip, false omniscience, heartbreaking betrayal. What what would a true believer in Yahweh be giving to him, showing him? What would he be like? Or to put it in New Testament terms that we're more familiar with, what is the greatest Christian virtue in which David's friends should have been demonstrating in his moment of weakness? What's the virtue which really sets you apart as a true believer in Jesus Christ? What's the virtue that imitates God's mercy, imitates God's grace, imitates God's forgiveness in your life? What's the virtue that embodies the spirit of seeing those around you as being made in the image of God and being the glorious pinnacle of God's creation What's the virtue that exemplifies humility and patience and all of the things that we wish everyone we know would show toward us all the time? What is that virtue? The greatest Christian virtue, I'm going to use a very familiar phrase, is unconditional love. Unconditional love. It's a virtue which is made possible only to the one who has experienced it. It's only because you've been forgiven, only because you know what it's like to receive unconditional love. Now, I am not speaking this evening or the next couple of evenings about the occasional circumstance in which someone close to you no longer wants your love, no longer wants a relationship with you, or perhaps has delved into a life of sin that's so heinous that you realize your, your relationship was really based in the falsehood in the first place. Those are heartbreaking situations in which a relationship is broken despite your best efforts, despite your efforts at unconditional love. What I am talking about though is the tendency that all of us have to subtly look down on others. And the antidote to that sin is unconditional love. But I'm not just making this up. I want to show you what we might call some foundations of unconditional love. Turn with me now, the next book over to Proverbs, and Proverbs chapter three. And I just want to do a flyover of some key verses as we're just laying this foundation. What does unconditional love look like? What what are the the kind of the, the, the pillars, the foundation stones that we have to set this upon? And we'll just do a few here. Proverbs three we'll call the first foundation unconditional love is internal unconditional love is internal it's not just a set of actions that looks like unconditional love that's called hypocrisy this is internalized it's real Proverbs 3 verses 3 and 4 the writer says let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you bind them around your neck write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The true believer is, char- is called to be characterized by steadfast love. This is the, the, the famous Hebrew word hesed, love, covenant-keeping love, love that keeps covenant at all costs. This is the love that God shows to his people. This is the, the primary way God describes his covenant faithfulness to us, is hesed, covenant love, steadfast love, faithfulness. And this is to be written on your heart. It's an obedient position which has positive benefits of pleasing the Lord and giving you favor with people. I mean, how do you feel towards someone that you know loves you unconditionally? You would do anything for them because it's a rare gift. It's a a beautiful thing between people. So unconditional love is internal. Turn with me to Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17 in our second foundation Unconditional love is consistent. It's consistent. Proverbs 17, verse 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now, this is classic Hebrew poetic parallelism. The the proverb says the same thing twice. And this is what's called synonymous parallelism. He's saying the same thing in two different ways. And he says first that a, that a friend, and the implication here is is a true friend, a real friend, loves at all times. Literally means on every occasion. There's never an occasion where that person will stop loving you. And then he says, and a brother is born for adversity. He was created for times of hardship. And this is really just a, an illustration. The, the lesson is obvious family relationships in the ancient near east were extremely important and even brothers who kind of didn't like each other would defend each other to the death from outside attack it's kind of like uh, in texas they used to have a saying uh, i might be able to cuss my sister but you do it and something's bad's going to happen to you that we might behind closed doors have difficulties but when push comes to shove we're together we are on the same page The proverb is simply illustrating that unconditional love is not choosy about when to be loving. It's consistent. It's all the time. Go to the next chapter over. Proverbs 18 may even be on the same page. The third foundation will just say unconditional love is genuine. It's genuine. Look with me at the very last verse of chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now this takes the brother illustration even further. Not only is unconditional love like the love of a brother, but it goes beyond the love of a brother. Why is that? Because the love of a brother, a love of a family member, you're sort of stuck with them, right? You were born into that. But the love of a friend is a love that's chosen. That you, You've chosen to give that. It's not out of obligation. But I want you to notice the dynamic here. There is also a Hebrew poetic parallelism, but rather than it being synonymously parallel, it's a contrasting parallel. The contrast here is between the person with endless shallow relationships. We might say he's a mile wide and an inch deep, but no actual close relationships and contrasting that person with the one who perhaps has fewer overall uh, close relationships, but those are deep and lasting and real and genuine relationships. The person who has not become vulnerable, real and sincere with anyone, but has a thousand acquaintances, you could say, well, I have a, I have a million friends. I have 750 Facebook friends. No, you don't. You have 750 people who makes, make themselves look good by friending you. Those aren't friends. This is the person who could find himself, according to scripture, without help in time of trouble. I have a thousand acquaintances and not one of them are coming to my aid right now but the one who has loved a few unconditionally at a deep level will find resources in the time of trial ultimately the person who tries to be everyone's best friend is going to fail many people because it may be that this love is not sincere nor is it unconditional I'm always concerned when somebody seems to have a deep relationship with everyone that means he has a deep relationship with no one and there needs to be some adjustment there let me put it this way it's Christmas time. If you're one that gets that pre printed card from your banker or your mortgage lender that says Merry Christmas and it brings a tear to your eye, you need deeper relationships. You need to say, I need better friendships than this. Remember that their so called love for you is only based on, on you doing something for them. It's only based on that. It's not real, it's not sincere, it's not genuine go to the next chapter proverbs 19 just treasures here for us proverbs 19 the fourth foundation will to say undepen- un- unconditional love rather is dependable unconditional love is dependable verse 22 what is desired in a man is steadfast love and a poor man is better than a liar Again, we have the Hesed love concept, the covenant-keeping love, and the illustration is given that, that a man with little means but who has honesty and dependability in relationships is better than the man with means who is conditional in his love. He's a liar. And the proverb says that this steadfast love, this covenant-keeping love, is desired, it's something that's yearned for, something that's longed for that husbands long for unconditional love from their wives instead of constantly trying to be changed in order to make their wives happy wives long for unconditional love from their husbands instead of them looking down critically on everything that she does church members long for unconditional love from their shepherds who will continue to patiently love and counsel and teach and exhort even when struggles and even when sins persistently occur And shepherds in the church long for the unconditional love of their people who will come alongside them for a lifetime of joy and and unity in the gospel together. And you as church members, you, you long for unconditional love from one another in which you can walk through life together with both your failures and your successes. In other words, who is on your list that you can call and confess the worst, most heinous sin to and know that that person will walk faithfully through it with you? They might not be nice at first but they'll be the one that proverbs says faithful are the wounds of a friend that's what we long for we we desire this let me give you one more foundational idea turn with me to proverbs 24 proverbs 24 and our fifth foundation we'll call unconditional love is gracious unconditional love is gracious Proverbs 24, verse 28. Be not a witness against your neighbor without cause and do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. This is the person who pictures relationships in terms of a score, that as long as I am winning, we're fine. As long as I'm getting my way, as long as I'm not being confronted about my sin, as long as you you step through my emotional hoops, I will not hurt you. But when this person perceives that a relationship is not going according to his or her rules, out come the weapons. And these weapons are words, they are emotional punishment of some, court, some sort, and any power that this person has over you will now be wielded to harm you. And that is a terrible way to have a relationship. This person can only love you as long as you're doing something for him, doing something for her, or as long as your expectations are being met. It's not gracious, and it's not really a relationship. You ever wonder what Jesus meant by love your enemies, Matthew 5, 44? I don't think most of you have a long list of people who hate your guts and wish you were dead. I don't think most of us have that. Most of you are pretty nice people. So who are our enemies? Well, in our context, it may be, as in David's case, the ones that we that we long to be closest to and yet treat you with disdain and distance perhaps the relationship at one time was close and now now it's distant and that is one category, the one who acts like an enemy but we are called to be gracious in our unconditional love, to return love for the hatred that even came our direction but not just externally gracious, but with all the foundational qualities I've already mentioned. So our foundation of unconditional love, the the greatest Christian virtue, it's internal, it's consistent, it's genuine, it's dependable, it's gracious. And I have to tell you, this was not a series I necessarily wanted to preach because I haven't mastered this yet. These are not easy concepts. I personally have by no means mastered them. I have the same struggles you do i want the lord's word to speak to my own heart as well as to yours but if we don't cultivate if we don't grow carefully and consider these foundational aspects of unconditional love it is possible for you yes as a christian it is possible for you to literally stop viewing someone else as a human being do you know that to degrade and deride and to think so little of someone in your mind and in your heart that bitterness has now become ingrained in your heart and you can't view that person any other way. I've seen this happen in relationships where a person who is genuinely on their knees trying trying to mend a relationship, there's nothing they can say. Everything that they say, even if it's repentant, even if it's humble, just makes the other person mad because that other person has been so ingrained with bitterness. This is the dynamic seen in Proverbs 21, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. That person has lost the ability to see his neighbor as a human being and becomes utterly merciless in his dealings. So now that we've laid somewhat a foundation for the greatest Christian virtue, unconditional love, how does this work itself out practically? Unconditional love includes elements such as patience, forgiveness, empathy, trust, sanctification, purity of heart, and some others. And over the next couple of messages, I'm going to continue this one long sermon and just begin to flesh out those elements and deconstruct the concept of unconditional love into its component parts so that we can see how it's made and we'll kind of of roll the screen back and see how the mechanism of unconditional love works. Now you might ask, why is this important to the believer in Christ? Why can't I just have the people I really love and a few people I can't stand and let that be okay? Why can't we do that? Because our commitment to unconditionally love one another is what sets us apart from the unbeliever. It's what reflects the work of the gospel in our lives. It's what makes us different. It's what makes us the most like God. Jesus had something to say about loving at a higher level than the unbeliever does. And we've already referenced part of this. He said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, if you're a child of God, you ought to be imitating God. You ought to be like Him. Sylvia and I have had the privilege of sitting under a great teacher. A great teacher that the Lord provided for us, a a teacher of unconditional love, who has taught us much about softening our own hearts, taught us much about being patient, about thinking less of ourselves. We're still growing, we're still learning, but our our teacher continues to faithfully pour into us with constant reminders, constant principles. We're thankful for this teacher. His lessons are sometimes hard, they're sometimes faithful, but they're good lessons, they're, they're right lessons, they're pure lessons. As some of you know our teacher um, he's our son Daniel while other children that we have by God's grace excel at many things Daniel has not been so blessed he's 25 years old he struggles with Asperger's syndrome struggles with very challenged intellectual functioning with mental and neurological problems which, which plague him and at times are even very torturous to him And when we're with Daniel, it's up to us to keep the conversation going. If any of you have had a conversation with Daniel, you know it's like having a bucket of tennis balls and you just have to keep throwing it to him. And he catches them and puts them in his pocket. And that's just the way it is. He tries his very best. And although he tries his very best, sometimes he makes decisions which hurt himself and hurt even others. These are decisions he often regrets, but he doesn't know how to fix them. And so it's very frustrating to him. And yet he has been our great teacher Because from him, we learn things like how to value just the physical presence of someone. We've learned things like how to value eating a meal in silence together. How to find the littlest, tiniest blessings, little tiny ones, and rejoice in them and thank the Lord for them. We've learned how to appreciate the smallest gestures that he makes toward us. We've learned how to empathize better with the downtrodden. We've learned how to respect the sovereignty of God in how he makes people. For me personally, I've found that Daniel grounds me in unconditional love, that when I'm dealing with heavy theological issues and and studying and complex things and leadership and, and teams and preaching and ministry, all the things that are demanding my time, Daniel doesn't care about any of that and he just wants to go for a walk. That is so grounding and so real. Daniel is God's gift to us to be a constant teacher in unconditional love. Now, if you're not as blessed as we are to have a Daniel, you do have something equally helpful and that is the body of Christ which is filled, overflowing with difficult to love people. People like me and people like you. I'm not going to name any names but there's plenty at Grace Bible Church. So how do you ground yourself? Just pick one or two and say, this year, in 2019, that person is going to be my teacher, that person is going to be my tutor to bring out the best in me, to bring out Christ-likeness in me, to teach me to love when I'm giving 100% and receiving zero, to teach me to be like Christ and to bring out the best. Well, next week, we'll start looking at some of the components of unconditional love and kind of deconstruct this into its parts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now asking you humbly to make us more like Christ. The one who literally, the only person who ever has, the one who was to bear the way of the world on his shoulders, still had time to let two-year-olds run to him and sit on his lap. The one who was the savior of the world and was concerned for great and mighty things literally of eternity still had time for a blind man who cried out for help he had time for another blind man who was too scared to cry out for help but had to be brought by his friends Lord at Grace Bible Church we want to obey Colossians 128 him we proclaim that we might present everyone mature in Christ And we want to strive for Christ-likeness. And in this area of unconditional love, Lord, I know that every one of us have difficult relationships, relationships that challenge us. And I pray, Lord, that we would turn our hearts toward you and we would begin to be more thankful for that and see these relationships as as a teacher, as a tutor, to make us more like you, to teach us that sometimes... Eating a piece of chicken quietly with someone is more important than explaining the theological intricacies of Calvinism to them. And to teach us, Lord, that to love someone as they even return hatred toward us is the most godlike thing we can do. Because we think of Romans 5 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us, Lord to demonstrate that kind of love, to make it real, to increase in our sanctification, increase in our ability. Help us, Lord, each to pick that one, two, or three people that we have the greatest difficulty with and to redouble our efforts, to reach out to them and to love them in a way that, that baffles the soul because it's not normal, but it is godly. I pray that this would be impactful on us and that we would be greater servants of Christ and more like him as a result. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake, amen.